Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in section 89 through 92 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And section 89 is like a lightning rod, isn't it, Bryce? It is. There's so much in here. The word of wisdom. It is controversial, but I think it's a lot deeper than sometimes we allow it to go into our souls. I think the word of wisdom has become a simple law of health. Do these things and don't do these things. And I would invite all of you to hear what we're about to say and let it sink maybe a little bit deeper into your soul. Yeah. So section 89 comes to us out of the school of the prophets. They're in the upstairs room of the Newell K. Whitney store, and it's this teeny little room. And some of the brethren would take out their plugs of tobacco and they chew, and then they spit on the floor during the meeting. And then at the conclusion of the meeting, Emma would come up and she would clean up this messy goo. And she came to Joseph and asked him to talk to the Lord about this. And this revelation was a response to that question. That was kind of the historical circumstance that brought about section 89. And so let's go to the text. Look at verse five. Inasmuch as any man drinketh wine or strong drink among you, behold, it is not good. And skip down to verse 8. And again, tobacco is not for the body, neither for the belly. Verse 9. And again, hot drinks are not for the body or belly. Modern prophets have defined hot drinks as coffee and tea. If you skip down to verse 12, it says, The flesh of beasts and the fowls of the air I, the Lord, have ordained for the use of man with thanksgiving. Nevertheless, they are to be used sparingly. Verse 14 says, All grain is ordained for the use of man and of beasts. And then finally, verse 16. All grain is good for food of man as also the fruit of the vine, that which yieldeth fruit. And so big picture, the word of wisdom is a binding law of health that members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints covenant to live and keep, and it's part of qualifying for a temple recommend. Typically, we focus on the prohibitions, which are alcohol, tobacco, coffee, and tea. So I really have four main points when I teach the word of wisdom that I think are important. And the first one is this. This came in gradually. From 1833 until about the 1930s, it wasn't a hard and fast rule. Now, today it's a commandment. And so when did that change? The way the word of wisdom went from a greeting, not by commandment or constraint, to a commandment where it's a prerequisite for you to qualify yourself to be baptized and qualify for the temple, that didn't happen in a day. That happened over time. So hold off your condemnation if you read that Joseph Smith drank alcohol. There were some circumstances in which Joseph Smith drank alcohol. We ought not to condemn him for it because of that very crescendo, that very rolling out of the word of wisdom. Yeah. And it's something that we see with the Lord in certain times where he meets us where we are and then he brings us along. And my favorite place to do this is in John 4. If you remember the story of the woman at the well, Jesus comes to this woman and he meets her where she is. He slowly brings her along to where finally she sees who he is, that he's the Messiah. And eventually he gives her an invitation. And she not only is converted to him as the Messiah, but she goes to her whole community and they're converted to Jesus. And I love this as an illustration of how God works with us. And so I see this in section 89, where the Lord says, this is for the weakest of the saints, but I'm not going to make it a command. This was a gradual thing. So after the word of wisdom was given, some of the early quorum of the 12 members really did try to live the word of wisdom. And some of them struggled with, for example, tobacco. In his letters and his correspondence with Brigham Young, the apostle Orson Hyde was very open about this with Brigham Young and struggled. So right around the turn of the century is where it became more practical and more accepted to be observed by church leaders and members of the church. But even then, 
older members of the church were shown leniency. And we have letters that correspondence between state presidents writing to the president of the church saying, what do I do about these individuals that are not keeping the word of wisdom? Can they go to the temple? And the general gist of it was if they were a little bit older and they were trying, hey, that was good. But around 1908, uh, it became more of a theme. And what's interesting is this was right about the time that prohibition became a national issue. And the president of the church was in, a, in an interesting position because there were groups that wanted prohibition to come and there were other people waiting to see how he would act. And instead of the president of the church speaking out about prohibition, he came out and said, we need to keep the word of wisdom. This is really important for them to do. And then right about 1933, Heber J. Grant becomes the president of the church. And he says that the compliance with the word of wisdom is a tenet of our faith. And before his death in 1945, the status of the revelation of section 89 came to the point in the church where it was binding and it was a test of our obedience and it was part and parcel of obtaining and qualifying for a temple recommend. Now, it's a lot more complicated than this. Like I said, you know, reading especially Orson Hyde's correspondence with Brigham Young and reading some of Brigham Young's statements, which we've put in the show notes, you can read them, where he even says to the brethren things like this, hey, if you have to chew, don't do it around people. Uh, we're trying not to do this. And you can see him pushing towards this. Once again, this came in gradually. So it shouldn't shock you if you learn things like when the saints got to Utah, there were people moving through the West and they would go to San Francisco. And Brigham got tired of the Gentile industries monopolizing and making money on some of these things. And so the saints got involved in constructing businesses that sold some of these things that were against the word of wisdom. Now, historically, that's difficult, but know that it happened. Like, we can't escape our history. And part of the reason was Brigham was building a kingdom. And he knew that all these this pass-through traffic that's coming through the Great Basin, he wants these people buying stuff from us. And he knew that this there was a big market for this. And so it shouldn't freak us out. But I know that when people are first exposed to some of these historical ideas, they're troubled because they're like, what about the word of wisdom? And I think a little bit of historical background will kind of help us relax a little bit and realize that in the 1800s, not everybody was living the word of wisdom. And I'm not going to make judgments. I wasn't there. I just know historically that's the case. I remember, Bryce, I was like a first-year seminary teacher, and I was going through these historical records. And a little bit more about my background, I wasn't like the most active person as a young person, and I come from like a divorced family, and so I, you know, I wasn't like the prototypical, perfect Latter-day Saint. And I remember going on my mission and I had a testimony, but I was rough around the edges and I came home and, and I'm going through these lists, the manifest lists of the saints that are coming across the plains. And I'm reading what they packed in their wagons. And I about fell out of my chair because I realized what they packed across the plains. I was like, why are they taking 20 pounds of coffee? Aren't they living the word of wisdom? Nobody had introduced me to this. I didn't know this. And so hopefully what I'm saying isn't shocking you. That's all wrapped up under number one, that this came in gradually. The second thing is that this was given for our time. I really think this is so important for us as Latter-day Saints to kind of understand and also to be careful, I think, when we teach the Word of Wisdom. And what I mean by this is sometimes we try to make the Word of Wisdom fit for all time. We don't need to have that stress. Because verse 4, the Lord tells us that this is in consequence of evils and designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days, meaning this is for us. This is for our day. This is our dietary law. Just like Jesus probably didn't eat pork, and he probably didn't have bacon. And the reason why is because he lived the dietary law of his day. And so we don't need to worry about whether or not Jesus made wine. My take in the very first miracle he does in John, where he turns water into wine, this is how I read it, especially in the Greek. But he made the kalon oinon. He made the good wine. Like that was wine. That's kind of my reading of the Greek, but take it for what it's worth. And so I think that can really alleviate a lot of stress about did the patriarchs or did the ancients live the word of wisdom? In my view, they did not. Now, neither did these early brethren. But I would interject, clearly they had to take care of their bodies just like we have to take care of our bodies. Yes. But perhaps they didn't have the conspiracies out to control them like we do today. It's unfair to impose our rules on someone else. Yeah. The third thing 
it may be beneficial to not try and give reasons for this dietary law, rather to emphasize the reason the Lord gives. I think sometimes we try to say, the reason why we live this law is because X has such and such in it. And we try to get into the weeds of the ingredient list. And then someone coming at us might say, well, what about this? And what about this? We do know one reason why the Lord says in verse 4, that it's in consequence of evils and designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men. The conspiracy. Yeah. So I, I try to make this more personal. Like, what are my reasons for doing it? Because it really ties into my fourth thing. My fourth important thing to remember about the Word of Wisdom, and it's this. It's that the president of the church has the power to decide. He's been given the power to decide. Section 107 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 79, says this. The presidency of the council of the high priesthood shall have power to call other high priests, even 12, to assist as counselors. And thus the presidency of the high priesthood and its counselors shall have power to decide upon testimony according to the laws of the church. The next verse identifies this decision as the ultimate or the final decision, as this council is the highest council in the church. The Lord designates the power of decision to this, the highest council of the church. And for this reason, the presidency of the church, being the highest council, having the power to decide, can state and define and even alter the requirements to the word of wisdom, since they have the power to decide invested in them. And that's important. And the reason why I think it's important is because presidents of the church over time have identified what these things are specifically like, what's a hot drink? What is that? Well, they have the power to decide and they decided that. The word of wisdom to me is a lens that we can look at a lot of other things. I'll give it a couple examples. Recently, the church came out and said, we're not going to have the Saturday night meeting during conference. But then just a couple days ago, they came out and said, we are going to have the Saturday night meeting the decision was reversed. Now, I've talked about this before with the golden clay principle. Over here, I'm extending my right hand, we have the gold principle. Everything in the scriptures is gold. God is doing everything. God is moving everything. And over here- It was God that said, don't hold the Saturday night meeting. Yes. And and they just simply received it and passed that on. Yes. And then over here with my left hand, I have my left hand extended out and it's the clay principle. And that's humans have power to decide and things are very human. For example, there are things that I believe in the Bible that are probably the interpolations of men, even in the Old Testament. I think that's fair to say. And so between these two, you know, my right fist and my left fist being extended out, there's this tension. So if somebody comes to me and says, really, is it really that important that you not have coffee? Because I've seen members of the church drink energy drinks. You can't tell me that's worse. My response is typically, the Lord has given the president of the church the power to decide. And it's the same thing with the Saturday night meeting. Do I believe that God in heaven said, we're not going to do the Saturday night meeting for conference. And then a couple of weeks later, he said, we are. I'm in the space of that's probably a clay thing that the president of the church had the power to decide and make that decision. And then upon further reflection, made a different decision. And if we can accept that and know that, I think that alleviates so much tension. The classic example, and it's almost like I keep coming back to this when I talk about the golden clay principle, but it's so classic because I feel like every member of the church has probably read this story, is the very beginning of the Book of Mormon. The Lord gives direction to a prophet and says, go get the plates. And what do we read? There's all these experiences with clay where they try. and He didn't tell them how to get the plate. He didn't. Now, does he get them? Yes. Does does he help them get them? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's so important. Nephi is trying and he's trying to figure things out and he's a prophet and he's had visions, but he doesn't know everything. In other words, he's not a sock puppet. And what what I mean by that is he's or a not a fax machine that simply yeah. receives and spits it out. Yes. That's what I'm trying to say. So to me, the word of wisdom is one of those uh, ones that I think in my conversations with people who want to kind of poke fun at us. They really feel like, oh, I'm going to get a zinger on you on this one where they say, really, do you really think God cares if I have a cup of tea? And my response is usually something like, this dietary law for me is part of my covenant as I'm trying to follow my religious faith. And then I usually shift gears and say, most religious traditions have these. And does God care if you keep your covenants or not? Yes. And I think that's Yes, he does. So... 
I believe strongly that there are two layers of the word of wisdom. And we get accused of being hypocrites, I believe, because we mix up the two layers. And so allow me to present two different aspects of the word of wisdom and how they affect us individually. Because the coffee, tea, tobacco side, that's layer two. And if we assume that the word of wisdom is only the things we don't consume because of layer two, we've missed out on layer one. Layer one of the word of wisdom is a principle with promise. Now, principles and doctrines are a little bit different. Principles are different for different circumstances. So if the word of wisdom is a principle with a promise, that means we're all going to obey it differently. Let's talk about some of the implied but maybe not stated principles of layer one. This is not the coffee, tea, tobacco discussion, which we all have to obey. I throw alcohol in there too. And alcohol. This is the, according to your circumstances, how do you apply the principle? So let's talk about layer one, the principle with promise. Now, to identify the principle, we're actually going to identify the promise. So turn with me to the very end of the Word of Wisdom, section 89, verse 18, and I invite you to read it with open eyes this time and listen to what it's trying to say. All saints who remember to keep and do these sayings, walking in obedience to the commandments, shall receive health. Now, that's where we normally end the sentence, at least in our minds. This is a law of health. Contrarily, also, if my grandmother dies of cancer and she never, ever drank anything, we think, well, the promise failed. Yeah. Those who obey and weren't healthy are the contradiction. Or then you have George Burns who smoked the cigar till he was 120 or something, right? Yeah. We we, we see these contradictions. They didn't obey the principle and yet they are healthy. But it doesn't end with the word health. And the next three words change the meaning, at least in my opinion, they change the meaning. All saints who remember to keep and do these sayings, walking in obedience to the commandments, shall receive health in their navel. The promise of the word of wisdom is health in our navel, marrow in our bones, wisdom and his hidden treasures of knowledge. And so why do I want a healthy navel? I don't think that's in reference to my stomach. It's not saying if you obey the word of wisdom, you'll have a healthy stomach. What the Lord is trying to teach here, layer number one is the condition of the physical affects the flow of spiritual nutrients. So in short, can I just simply say, if you want more spirituality in your life, if you want greater vigor in your soul, Consider how you're treating the physical body. The word of wisdom is a declaration that those two are inseparably connected. There was a time when you were in your mother's womb that you were fed through your navel. Nutrients that you needed to grow and waste that you needed to get rid of went through your navel. The navel was a cord. It was a channel from which you were fed from a parent. And I suggest that what Heavenly Father is teaching is that we are still spiritually in the womb. We are in the process of being born again. And if I want a healthy navel, I need to take care of my physical body. The connection between the physical body and the flow of spiritual nutrients is the principle of the word of wisdom. So point number one is, clearly this word of wisdom is saying, the food you eat has an effect on that flow of spiritual nutrients. Eating the right foods at the right times in the right amounts will keep the navel healthy. You know, Bryce, you talk about the right foods. And in, in this revelation, it talks about grain being the staff of life. And I have close friends that can't eat gluten. 
And so obviously that's the principle, right? And you have to apply it differently to your circumstance. Right. You're not going to eat gluten, even if it says grain is the staff of life, because that's going to physically make you sick. And in so your, that's the principle. Yeah. In your circumstance, don't eat gluten. That's why the Lord says you've got to know what foods open and close that navel, that spiritual channel. But eating the right foods will open it up. Eating the wrong foods or even eating the right foods in the wrong amounts. I have a real big problem with sugar. If I pick up something that has sugar in it, I have to eat it until I can't move. Bryce, I have no self-control. I don't know what's wrong with me. Maybe I'm broken, but it's not one cookie. I have to have them until I can't physically walk. And that's a problem. But it's not part of the Temple Recommend interview. Bishop's not going to ask me, but I'm going to ask It's the you. wisdom of a man saying, look, I don't want to give the sugar industry control over me. I'm going to set limits, and I'm going to draw some lines and say, okay, I get it. Yeah. I get that that's an addictive substance. Mike and I deal with college students all the time, and the typical college student does not eat the right food at the right time. They wake up late, they rush to class, they don't eat breakfast, and they wonder why they're grumpy. The body is an engine that needs fuel. And if you don't feed it the right fuels in the right amounts at the right times, you will not have health in your navel. And you're wondering why you're cranky all the time or that you're grumpy or you just feel down. Maybe you ought to look at the food you're providing for the body. So let's do number two. So if number one is food, here's the funny thing. To have a healthy heart, you need to stress it out. So exercise becomes critical for the engine to run properly. If you're getting too much exercise or if you're not getting enough exercise, for some people, a brisk walk is a great way to exercise. And I know it doesn't mention this in the Revelation, but you can overtrain. I think really this whole thing is really about balance. Yep. Maybe that's another way to say it. And so the, the principle would say, given your body, how much exercise does your body need to have a healthy navel? And you need to provide that. So food is one, exercise is another. Can I suggest that one of the greatest violations of the principle of the word of wisdom that I'm going to list as number three is sleep? Sleep is critical for our body to function properly. It is nearly impossible to feel the whisperings of the Spirit when you're tired, when your body has not had sufficient sleep. If sleep is an afterthought, if it's sleep is just, oh, I'm only hurry and get some sleep, or I'm not going to... I'm going to stress out my life and minimize my sleep. If you are not providing the body the sleep it needs, you're violating the principle and you will not have health in your navel. Your body needs sleep. Number four, I would suggest, is stress management. How you handle stress is a critical aspect of the word of wisdom because stress we will have. Life will bring stress. How you handle that stress. Do you have a strategy? One of my favorite entries in Joseph Smith's journal, in the middle of February, he said that he diverted himself by going out and sliding on the ice with his son. Now, can you imagine a prophet out sliding on the ice? But he needed that to deal with the stress of his life. This is why we need hobbies this is why we need something to look forward to. We have to have a stress management strategy. This is why there's music and mountains and bicycles and walks in the park. Joseph Smith was once asked something about that. And he says, if you, he asked the man if he kept his bow strung. And the man said, no, it would lose its power and elasticity. You have to unstring your bow. And he made the comparison that human beings are that way too. We have to unstring the bow. You have to have a strategy to manage your stress. And let me do one more, just number five, just I'll leave you to think of any other aspects. But number five, sometimes our bodies don't produce enough of a specific hormone. We are hormone deficient because we're lacking some specific needed hormone. And balancing those hormones will bring health in your navel. Uh, diabetes is one of those where I'm not, my body's not producing insulin. Therefore, I need to find a way to 
restore that to to bring the insulin I need into my body because then I can have health in my navel. And all of us kind of go through periods of our life where a hormone is out of balance. And I would encourage you that that is part of the word of wisdom, at least level one, that you find a way to balance those hormones, whatever you need to do. We have brilliant doctors on this planet who can help you balance hormones. So would you consider that? Would you ask yourself, in what area do I violate the principle of the word of wisdom? Number one, the food you put into your body. Number two, exercise. Number three, sleep. Number four, how you handle stress. And number five, do you have a hormone deficiency that medicines or medical approaches or maybe even the right food would balance again? Those are the five that I would suggest, but I would encourage you to think of others. Are there other things we do to this body that have an effect on the flow of nutrients through our spiritual umbilical cord? Now that's layer one. Let me introduce you to layer two. Layer two of the word of wisdom is a warning against a conspiracy. Verse 4 of Doctrine and Covenants 89 says, Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, In consequence of evils and designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days, I have warned you and forewarned you by giving you unto you this word of wisdom by revelation. So, layer two of the word of wisdom is that conspiring men are conspiring to do something dangerous. Therefore, the warning is to obey the word of wisdom. The Book of Mormon's version of secret combinations kind of resulted in the government being corrupted by people who killed the chief judge and then placed a new chief judge in that they could control and they get their way. But what are the secret combinations we deal with in our day? Well, let me take you back to Moses chapter 5 in the Pearl of Great Price and point out what happened when Cain and Satan formed the first secret combination. In chapter 5 of Moses, verse 30, one reason we call them secret combinations is because things were done in secret. And we read that in the book of Helaman, that they kept a secret. They, they, they didn't tell that Kishkumen held a secret, or that in the book of Ether, that they kept a secret and things were done in secret. Yes, that's one reason they're called secret combinations. But in Moses 5 verse 31, there's another interesting thought. We call them secret combinations because they know a secret. Verse 31 says, Cain says, Truly I am Mahan, master of this great secret. If you jump down to verse 49, Lamech was also Master Mahan, master of that great secret. So what is the Mahan principle? What is the great secret that those men mastered? Going back to verse 31, Cain says, I am master of this great secret that I may murder and get gain. The Mahan principle is how to turn life into money. Slavery is one drastic example of the Mahan principle, how to get rich off of someone else's life. The Mahan principle leads people to murder others. Look at verse 33. Why did Cain kill his brother Abel? One of the reasons, he says, is I am free. Surely the flocks of my brother falleth into my hands. See, there's the Mahan principle. There's the great secret. I killed my brother and stole his flocks. I got rich off of ending my brother's life. And the plot of most murder mysteries is that someone was killed so that someone else got rich. Now, luckily, police know the Mahan principle, and one of the ways we catch the bad guy is we figure out who got rich, because there's the secret. Who got rich in someone else's death? Now we turn to the Doctrine and Covenants, section 89, the word of wisdom, and let's take the Mahan principle to a new level. How many times can Cain kill Abel and steal his flocks? Once. So Satan kicks it up a notch. 
in our day, there is a tremendously powerful way to steal someone's money without necessarily ending it. Again, verse 4, in consequence of evils and designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days, I have warned you and forewarned you by giving unto you this word of wisdom. Now, what do the elements of the word of wisdom have to do with the conspiracy of turning life into money? The next level than killing someone and stealing their money is to get them addicted to something for which they will pay you drastic amounts of money as you slowly take their life. Enter the tobacco industry. If ever there was a mayhem conspiracy, how can we get rich off of other people's lives? It's the tobacco industry. I once tabulated, and depending on how you tabulate it, the average smoker pays the tobacco industry upwards of $150,000 in their lifetime. Imagine every smoker in the world paying the tobacco industry $150,000 in their lifetime. Now, the brilliance of the tobacco industry is smoking started to come down. Cigarette smoking was on the decline. So now they've invented a whole new way to get rich off of our lives and enter vaping. And now vaping becomes the new way of getting money off of, it's a new mayhem principle. And there's a conspiracy out there to steal your money by ending your life slowly. And so we get addicted to substances and we pay that industry. And the alcohol industry has very cunningly convinced the world that alcohol is cool. We all admit the best commercials on television are often beer commercials. And they sure present drinking alcohol as funny and cool and enjoyable and entertaining, and there's the conspiracy. What they're not telling you is that they are conspiring to addict you to a product for which you will pay them profoundly as it potentially ends your life. It's a mayhem principle. And so the Lord says, absolutely not among the followers in my church. I will not allow you to be destroyed by a mayhem conspirator. And so he has outlawed certain things that, according to the conspiracy, he doesn't want his saints to participate with. Now, where do you draw the line? And why not this? And why not? I can't answer all those questions. Maybe the conspirators are different. Or maybe this is just left up to all of us to judge for ourselves. Maybe the church has said, here are the five or six that we want to draw attention to and we leave the rest to you. The point here is, do not allow someone else to control you. There is a beautiful verse in the Bible. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, the prophet in his day wisely said, For of whom a man is overcome... Of the same, he is brought into bondage. The conspirators in our day are trying to addict you to something. The debt industry is doing that. Sometimes the weight loss industry is doing that. So you need to pay them more and more money. I think the Lord is calling us out to say there are those who are using addiction to control your life. Now, maybe that's through a video game. Maybe that's through social media. Maybe it's through fashion. I have to wear the most popular trends, and then they're going to change, and then I have to wear the next most popular trends. Of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought into bondage. I think layer two of the word of wisdom is a call to arms to say, don't give someone else control over you. Nephi foresaw that, that in the latter days, some of the most dangerous churches we would have to deal with. Look at this fascinating list. At the, in 1 Nephi chapter 22, Nephi had a glimpse at the false churches of our day. In verse 23, he identified five of them. Here are the most dangerous false churches of our day, Nephi says. The first one is the church of getting gain. The second one is fascinating. It is the church of getting power over the flesh. 
And I think that's the word of wisdom. And that's the layer two, the mayhem principle, secret combinations in our day, is that there are false churches who are trying to gain power over your flesh. Now, just to be complete, Nephi mentions three other churches, the church of popularity. I have to be acceptable. Church number four is the church of lust. And we've all watched someone we love be destroyed by the church of lust. And then the last one is the church of the things of the world. But the one I draw your attention to is Nephi foresaw false churches that would seek to have power over your flesh. The spirit of this second layer of the word of wisdom is saying to you, don't let anyone control you. Don't let anyone have power over your flesh. And they're going to do that through addiction in all different forms. It's life for money. How can I control your life so that you give me money? John Taylor, third president of the church, said, I was not born a slave. I cannot, will not be a slave. I would not be a slave to God. I would be his friend, his servant, his son. I would go at his behest, but I would not be his slave. I would rather be extinct than be a slave. His friend I feel I am, and he is mine. But a slave? The manacles would pierce my very bones. The clanking chains would grate against my soul. A poor, lost, servile, crawling wretch to lick the dust and fawn and smile upon the thing who gave the lash. But stop. I am God's free man. I will not, cannot be a slave. Don't be a slave to a substance. Don't be a slave to an addiction. Don't let the world control you, whether it's I'm addicted to social media or likes on my Instagram or a substance. I cannot, I will not be a slave. That's layer two of the Word of Wisdom. So would you ponder this week as we study the Word of Wisdom, are there ways in which you are mistreating the physical body that would open up the channel and make my navel more healthy? And are there conspirators out there who are deliberately trying to addict me to something to control my life so that I give them my money? Excellent, Bryce. I really like those two layers. There's a lot more in here uh, historically, and we usually get asked about this question about the comma that's in section 89, verse 13. There's no comma in the original. Nor but... was there in the 1835 edition or the 1844 edition. Yeah. It's not till much later that the comma is put in there. I'm going to read Which the- does change the meaning. I'm going to read the verse. It's, it is pleasing unto me that they should not be used, comma, only in times of winter or cold or famine, meaning talking about the, the flesh of beasts. Now, there not being a comma in the original, there's people on both sides of this argument. Jane Birch has done some really good studies on this, asking some of these questions like, why was the comma removed? Who removed it? Does it change the meaning? But I will say this. I think she's right when it comes to who changed it. You see, before 1921, the comma wasn't there. But then she gives really good evidence that was probably James Talmadge. And then she defends him and gives good reasons as to why. I don't think that it'd be anything that you would want to teach maybe in a gospel doctrine lesson. But I think if you're one of those people that you're like, I come to talk in scripture because I want to know about some of these things, then you can pull on that thread and you can go read some of that stuff in the show notes about it. But I will say this, I don't think culturally or as a church, we eat meat sparingly. And I think that's kind of in line with how we've lived it ever since it was revealed. It's kind of one of those things where if you want to eat meat, you can eat meat. So we would refer you back to the discussion we had in section 49 when the shakers were opposed to eating meat and the Lord talked about that meat was ordained. Yeah. And how much meat you eat, what you choose to eat, those are the personal decisions. That's up to you. And again, it goes back to, I would say, layer one of the word of wisdom. What does meat do to your body? What does it do to your mind? You just decide what's right for you, and let's not turn it into a doubtful disputation. Yeah. 
But boy, there, there's some fun stuff with that missing comma. So go pull that thread, look at the show notes, and it's a lot of fun. But that being said, I really do want to reiterate what Bryce talked about with the two layers, that connection to heaven, and then be mindful of the hearts of conspiring men. And it applies to so many things other than just what we eat, but it's all kinds of things that we put into our body. Section 90 is is a further step in the establishment of the first presidency. We're going to add two counselors and form a three-person first presidency. And the Lord's going to talk about the keys that they hold. And he's going to call, notice in verse 6, Sidney Rigdon and Frederick G. Williams as Joseph's counselors. And then he's going to say, they are accounted as equal with thee in holding the keys of this last kingdom. He's going to form a presidency of the Melchizedek priesthood. And that is known as our first presidency. Three people that are equal in quorum, and they hold the keys. So this is the calling of the two new counselors, and verses 13 through 18 is a wonderful description of the duty of the first presidency. This is what the first presidency does. They preside over the affairs of the church. From time to time, they receive revelation to unfold the mysteries of the kingdom. They set in order the churches. They study and learn. They are acquainted with all good books, with languages, with tongues, and with people. They preside in council. They set in order all the affairs of this church and kingdom. Um, They are not ashamed or confounded, but they are admonished in their high-mindedness and pride. They set in order their own houses, which will be significant when we get to section 93. They keep slothfulness and uncleanness far from them. I love that description of the duties of the First Presidency. I think we all can take a lesson and say this is what we all should be doing as the example has been set by our First Presidency. But I think the whole main point of section 90 is what do you do with the oracles? The first presidency are given the oracles, and from them, the oracles are given to others. But that phrase, oracle, Mike, that's an odd phrase. It's not one that we use often in the church. What are the oracles of the church, Mike? So it comes from Latin, oraculum, which means speak. But the word, I think, is even older. It's coming from debir. That's the Hebrew word which is translated as oracle in the Old Testament, and it's tied to Revelation. So the word debir is the word which is used and translated as oracle, but it also can mean like the hindmost chamber or the innermost room of the temple. And so you have the holy of holies, the the Kodesh HaKodeshim, but that holy of holies is also called the debir. And it literally can mean the place of speaking. And so the place I want you to think about is behind the veil in the temple, that's the debir, and it's related to the word debar. And there's a couple of these, depending on how you do the vowel pointing. Debar can mean to speak, but debar can also mean speech, word, or thing. And so the word word and thing in Hebrew is the same word, debar. And if you read how the authors of the Book of Mormon use the word for thing or word, they use it interchangeably. Joseph Smith, translating this, doesn't know this stuff. But if you do a careful reading, it even says, like, when you receive these things, Moroni says at the end, well, that word, these things, is the dabarim, that it's the things or the words, and it's interchangeable. And so the oracle are these words that come from the place of speaking, I think what's happening here is this is giving us the process of how Joseph Smith's revelations will be disseminated through him and his counselors and others. In other words, the prophet receives the word from God and then shares it with his counselors in the presidency. Through the presidency, then the word will then be delivered to the church and through the church to the world. It's almost like this is the map of where the light comes from. And what I want you to envision is that in the Debir, in the Holy of Holies, like this is just a cosmic view of this, right? We have light coming from God to the person that's to give it, and then he gives it to the counselors, then he gives it to the church, and then he gives it to the world. And what's really interesting about this is if you look at verse 11, 
Look what it says. It shall come to pass in that day that every man shall hear the fullness of the gospel in his own tongue, in his own language, through those who ordained unto this power. In other words, you, you are part of this process. You hold a part in that rolling out of the word. And that's why we have an MTC. And that's why we're teaching people languages, because the church takes verse 11 very seriously. I remember sitting in a meeting with a fellow who got emotional talking about DVDs. And then he turned to this verse and he said, the DVD has made it so we can make a church video in multiple languages. And he talked about how this piece of technology, now this has been years you know, since I've had this conversation, but he said that piece of technology has enabled people to hear the gospel in their own tongue because that's who God is. I believe in a God who will meet you where you're at. He will come to you in that language. And so, Bryce, yeah, to me, the oracles of God is a big deal. It is the words of God. And I think this section is also showing us the means by which it flows. And so the warning in verse 5 is, be careful, all they who receive the oracles of God, both as a listener and a possessor. Let them beware how they hold them lest they are accounted as a light thing. Now, this implied warning. If you treat the first presidency's words as a light thing, you will stumble and fall when the storm descends and the winds blow and the rains descend and beat upon your house. Now, twisting that into a positive, one of the very best ways to weather the storms of the latter days is to hold the words of the first presidency in high esteem and not treat them lightly. I love every speaker at General Conference, but the members of the first presidency are on a different level. When they speak, I listen and read and reread and mark many, many times. They are the oracles of God. I just, to me, that's what's significant that comes out of section 90. Plus, this beautiful prophecy in verse 24 search diligently, pray always, and be believing, and all things shall work together for your good. If you walk uprightly and remember the covenant wherewith you have covenanted one with another, that's a mirror scripture. That's one that we need to repeat numerous times. Search diligently, pray always, and be believing, and all things shall work together for your good. Walk uprightly and remember your covenant. So hold in high esteem the oracles that come, the messages that come from the first presidency, and pass them on to those with whom you have influence. If we hold them in high esteem, we will survive the storms that come. Yep. Excellent. So Verse 25, it might throw you for a loop. Let your families be small, especially my aged servant, Joseph Smith Seniors, as pertain to those who do not belong to your families. You might have a question mark next to that. That isn't the Lord saying don't have children. Uh, Essentially, it applies to the extended social obligations as the saints are gathering. And so let's say I gathered to Kirtland and I had a home. When people would come into my home and live with me because they need shelter, they would be part of Mike's family. They're not necessarily blood, but they're part of the family. And this is kind of in the spirit of Christian charity. And so in this revelation, the Lord gives this counsel specifically to Father and Mother Smith. Who have probably been erring on generosity and allowing, and that's put a burden on them. And the Lord's simply saying, run with wisdom, and you're letting too many people come in. Now, to someone else, he's probably saying, you're not letting enough people come in. Open your home to saints who are struggling. We just keep coming back to that word balance and order and doing it in wisdom. And so he says to one who's clearly opening his house too much, it's okay if you shut the door and limit the number of people that come in. That's right for you. So don't run faster than you have strength, but run as fast as you have strength to run. It's a good principle. I love that balance there. That's a great principle. Uh, Section 90, verse 19 is talking about a place being provided for Frederick G. Williams. Now, just historically so we can remember, he needs a place because he's given his land. He's given his land up to the church and his farm, 
And so in this verse, the Lord is essentially saying, well, we need to make a place for him because he's consecrated a, a lot of his land. In fact, some of this land is going to be provided as grounds around the Kirtland Temple. And I love verse 18, set in order your houses. That's this idea of balance again. The last thing I want to talk about with this section is a woman that's mentioned in this revelation. And from my study of the Doctrine and Covenants, there's two women that are mentioned by name in the Doctrine and Covenants. And one is Emma Smith. And the other one is Vienna Jacks. Vienna Jacks is in, in verse 28 through 31. So the Lord says, it is my will that my handmaid Vienna Jax should receive money to bear her expenses and go to the land of Zion. And the residue of the money shall be consecrated unto me and she shall be rewarded in my own due time. I say unto you that it is meet in mine eyes that she should go to the land of Zion and receive an inheritance from the hand of the bishop, that she may settle down in peace inasmuch as she is faithful and not be idle in her days from henceforth. Now, she does. She does go to Missouri. She's 45 at the time of this revelation, and she joined the church on July 12th, 1831. Emer Harris baptizes her, and she grew up in Boston, and she supported herself as a nurse, and she had saved quite a bit of money. And so when she moves to Kirtland sometime before March of 1833, she consecrates her wealth to build up Zion. She gives $1,400 cash that she had probably worked her whole life to save up. And according to the historical records, she did this without hesitation. And so in this revelation, the Lord calls her out by name that she's to have an inheritance in Zion. I mean, this is really what it means to be a consecrated saint, right? She, in faith, comes to the Savior and she consecrates all that she has. And the Lord says, you have a place, Vienna. She gets there. And she's just there a couple weeks in the summer of 1833 when the saints are mobbed and driven from Jackson County. And so she has to leave. She goes north, and at the age of 60, after Joseph Smith is martyred, she travels west with the saints. She drives her own cart across the plains to Salt Lake. She remains faithful and steadfast in the church for more than 50 years. And she moves with the saints in all their wanderings from Missouri and then up north to Illinois. And then she finally dies in Salt Lake City in 1884 at the age of 96. And she's mentioned by name here in this revelation. And I think the spirit of Vienna is with so many other saints. There are so many other people that come to the Lord and they give their all and they go to the land of Zion. And a lot of the people that went to Missouri, it didn't work out. But when she gets to Salt Lake, she's able to settle in Zion, and she lives faithful, and she speaks about her faith. Her obituary stated, she was true to her covenants and esteemed the restoration of the gospel as a priceless treasure. I love the reference to her in just a small little few verses, because I hear the Lord saying, I remember Vienna Jacks. And if God remembers Vienna Jacks, he remembers me. He remembers my small contributions. He's aware of all the challenges that I face. I think this is the Lord saying, in a section in which I'm calling out the first presidency, in the very section where I'm noticing the most prominent members of the church, I'm also pointing out to all of the Vienna Jacks of the church that I am aware of you too. It is my firm witness that God is aware of each and every one of your challenges and your contributions, and He is aware of every time you fall down and get back up. It's Him honoring all of the Vienna Jacks, all of the, I'm just doing my job, Lord, people of the church. And so just a beautiful reference to her. Section 91, Joseph Smith is working with the Bible translation. There's a verse where the Lord says, you need to go and translate the prophets. That's section 90, verse 13. And the prophets are the portion of the prophets in the Old Testament. That's what it's referring to. Now, most Latter-day Saints don't recognize that even in the King James Version of the Bible, depending on which version you have, there are added books that some of us don't have in our current King James Bible. There are additional books 
in the scriptures. They're referred to as the Apocrypha, which, you know, are they scripture? Are they not scripture? There's a question mark associated with them. The church has chosen not to print them in our King James Version of the scriptures, but other King James Versions of the Bible will have them included. And so the question is, Joseph Smith is saying, should I translate these questionable books known as the Apocrypha? That's the question on the table. Yeah. And, uh, Essentially, he's told, hey, it's not needed. You don't need to do it. Look what it says in verse one. There are many things contained that are true, and it's mostly translated correctly. And there's many things contained that are not true, which are the interpolations of the hands of men. Now, isn't that true of almost everything else in our life? I am a biology major. I studied biology. And couldn't the Lord say of my study of biology, there are many things in biology that are wonderful and true and faith-promoting, and you'll see the hand of God in them. But couldn't he also say there are things in the study of biology that are not true that are interpolations by the hands of men? or philosophy, or anything else. So I think the Lord is waving his arm saying, in your study, and I love the fact that in section 90, he said that the first presidency should be acquainted with all good books and with languages, tongues, and people. And then in the very next section, he gives this warning. So what is the counsel, Mike? What are we told to do when I'm studying something that has both truth and falsehoods in them? I think that's verse four through six. Therefore, whoso readeth, let him understand, for the Spirit manifesteth truth. So, that, you know, you need to understand it. And whoever is enlightened by the Spirit shall obtain the benefit therefrom. And whoso receiveth not by the Spirit cannot be benefited. Therefore, it is not needful that it should be translated. So I think the Lord essentially is saying this. There's good stuff in there. Read it by the Spirit. And you'll understand. Now, if you're interested... We link to a page called Joseph Smith and the Apocrypha, and we went through, well, what is the Apocrypha? And it's this group of texts that early, early Christians and Jews from a long time ago were kind of going through going, how historical is this? What do we do with this? And so what we did was we linked the first book of Esdras, the second book, the book of Tobit, the book of Judith, and you can click on every one of these and it takes you to the actual text. Someone out there, I don't know who they were, but they took all these apocryphal books and they're translated in English and it's a sacred text website and you can read Judith. By the way, I think Judith is awesome and it's all temple. There are great things in there. Yes. There is truth and the Holy Ghost will point out what's true. And the things that aren't true that you need to ignore. Whenever students ask me, ooh, which one's the best one to read? Which should I start reading? I always say, read the Book of Mormon. But if you've read the Book of Mormon and you've read all the standard works, go read the Apocrypha. There's some great stuff in there. But I wouldn't start with that. I would start with the Book of Mormon. I would, you know. If I had to rank him, I'm like, I'd start with the Book of Mormon. I'd read the New Testament. I love, I'm an Old Testament nerd. I read the Old Testament. But there's some great stuff. In our show notes, we also give you a really good, and it's abbreviated. I've abbreviated a lot from Hugh Nibley's book called An Approach to the Book of Mormon, where he says, what do the apocryphal texts say? Because Hugh Nibley is a lover of all these things, and he's read all this stuff. And he says, well, first of all, know that they're full of bizarre and peculiar things. Such things by their very oddity can sometimes be traced back to their uninspired sources and the interpolations of men. But along with dubious information, it is even more apparent that there are many things in there that are true. In the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Jewish Apocrypha, the Christian Apocrypha, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have five bodies of documents every one of which has numerous points of resemblance to the other four. By the process of boiling them all down to those teachings which they all share in common, scholars hope and often claim to discover the original pattern of thought common to all of them, and in the end to reveal the true nature and origin of the gospel. What results from this process is always the same thing. The common denominator of all the apocryphal writings and all the scriptures is the apocalyptic or estiological theme. There is no clearer or fuller exposition of this theme than in the Book of Mormon. And then he proceeds to talk about what they all have in common. Briefly, there's 10 things that these apocryphal texts have in common. The first one is that there's this great tradition. 
Essentially, it's this idea that God's people represent a continuous tradition through time. And if you think about that as Latter-day Saints, we teach this, right? That Adam and Eve are this first dispensation, and we are the, the ones that inherit that great tradition all the way down through time. And what does Nephi write about? The same kinds of things, that they inherit that tradition. A second thing they have in common is this idea of secret teaching. We read this in Alma 12, where angels were sent and conversed with men and made known unto them the plan prepared from the foundation of the world, that it was secret, but that God is revealing it. Another thing they have in common, these writings talk about the importance of a holy book. Well, what do you get in the very first chapter of the Book of Mormon? Lehi is brought into the presence of God and given a book. What is one of the first things Joseph Smith receives? Is fascinating. The fourth thing is that these apocryphal texts often talk about a plan. And you don't have to read very much of the Book of Mormon to read things like this, that there was a plan that was prepared from the foundation of the world, Alma 1230, or 2 Nephi 2.15, that God has eternal purposes. The fifth is that they deal with this idea that there's a revelation, that God reveals things to prophets. The sixth is this idea of time and timelessness. The plan and the true story of man's life on earth being estiological, that is, in in Hugh Nibley's words, beyond the limits of local time and space, is timeless. Abinadi can speak quite naturally of things to come as though they had already come, Mosiah 16.6. And Mormon can address unborn generations as if they were present, and yet they are not, Mormon 8.35. So, These texts talk about this idea of time being flexible because to God, he's outside of this binding nature of time. Many of the apocryphal texts talk about the importance of a Messiah. Uh, One scholar, uh, Gunkel, wrote, Before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, found in the pre-Christian apocryphal writings frequent reference to a divine redeemer, a new heaven and earth, the millennial rule of the Lord in person on earth, and a Messiah who is to come as a human, and yet more than a human, a carefully cultivated wisdom literature. This doctrine of the resurrection of the flesh, all of these things are in these texts, this idea of a divine Messiah. A couple more, number eight, that we live in a probationary estate. We're kind of in between, meaning that we're not with God yet. And so we have this even in the Book of Mormon in First Nephi 15, that our earth life is in the days of probation. And we see this in some of the Christian apocryphal texts where they talk about the teaching of the two ways or the way of light and the way of darkness. We see some of this stuff in the DDK, which is an apocryphal text in the sense of this was a text that all the Christians read, but... In the fourth century, when some of the bishops were deciding what to do with the DDK, it got cut from the biblical text. It got cut from the New Testament as authoritative. Two more. Uh, These apocryphal texts talk about the doctrine of apostasy, that there's periods of darkness. We see this in the DDK especially. And then finally, an apocalypse of woe, that the world is fallen and it needs to be fixed. And they're actually termed as apocalyptic because there's these destructions that happen. Why? Well, because the earth is sick and they're not listening. And so essentially, these 10 things that Hugh Nibley kind of goes through with what the apocryphal texts are dealing with are in these texts. You got to find them. You got to kind of sort through them like section 91 says. But what's fascinating to me is the Book of Mormon sits squarely in these elements of these books. Many of them didn't make the cut. But yet, if you go down the list of these 10 things, we see many of these in the New Testament. And so the New Testament authors understood these themes and wrote about them, and the Book of Mormon deals with them. And so I think the Apocrypha is valuable. I really like it. Occasionally when I'm teaching, I'll tell a little story from the Apocrypha, especially if it's commenting on Scripture. For example, like um, the Book of Jubilees is kind of like Genesis for nerds. And so I'll be reading or we'll be going through a story in Genesis, and then the story just cuts off. And the author of Genesis just starts writing about something else. And sometimes it's almost like the author is assuming that you know the backstory. And a lot of times the backstory is provided in these other texts. And so I think it gives light um, for a teacher or a student of Scripture to see the multifaceted nature of Scripture and that many things that were swirling around in Jesus's day are not in our text. Like there's all these references to the Enoch literature in the New Testament 
but it's not in the scriptures. And so I think it's valuable culturally. I think it's important, but I also understand as Latter-day Saints, we have a lot of scriptures. I mean, we are going to do the Old Testament in one year. That could be multiple years. Take it for what it's worth. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. Don't feel obligated to go study the Apocrypha. But it's there. (laughs) But if you're interested, go and go with the Holy Ghost and the Holy Ghost will help you know the truth. I'm sorry. I could talk a lot more, but (laughs) But I'm a weirdo. (laughs) But I love that concept that the Lord gives in section 91. Read it with the Spirit. And in our world in which we live today, we have such conflicting voices. I love the spirit of section 91 that simply says, you get the Holy Ghost and it will help you know what is right for your family and what's best for you. You take care of you. And everyone else can take care of themselves. I just love the spirit of 91. It's so applicable. There's good, there's bad, and get the Holy Ghost and you'll know what's right for you. Section 92, really short. It's counsel given to Frederick G. Williams, who's in the first presidency. And there's a really cool phrase in here about being a lively member. I love that. I love that he simply says, be a lively member of the United Order. And I just, I just, that's what I take out of section 92 is I need to be a lively member of the church. I need to be a lively member of my quorum in participating and sharing. I just, I love that counsel, be a lively member. So good. So with that, we thank you for listening and we will see you next time when we cover section 93. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.